Good evening, everybody. Um, welcome. Um, as academic tutor, it's my pleasure to welcome you to um, the second uh, in the Green Templeton College lecture series. If you were here last week, uh, thank you again for coming, and we hope you'll, you'll continue to come to the four sessions that there are, which uh, spread out over the next uh, three weeks. Um, I'm particularly pleased uh, to welcome our speaker. Um, it's a great pleasure for us to have you here, Sonia, and thank you very much for agreeing to come. Um, I'm going to give a brief introduction, but before I do, could I just ask people uh, to be conscious of safety and that if the fire alarm goes off, it won't be a test. And so there are two exits in, the, in this room. Um, so you make your way out of the exits out of, uh, and up on, assemble on the green outside the building. So just to observe that. As I explained last week at uh, the opening lecture, um, the GTC lecture series um, takes a contemporary theme and seeks to interrogate it from a number of different perspectives. For example, political, philosophical, uh, global, or indeed in terms of public welfare and uh, human, um, human welfare more broadly. And the themes we pick uh, we try to relate quite closely to the mission of the college, which is improving human welfare in an increasingly complex world. Um, the theme this year of the world's child is intended to raise questions about the changing nature of childhood and how our adult world responds to that. We take forward that topic this evening by considering children and the Internet. This seems an extremely important topic in its own right, but particularly in terms of the two main insights that inform the series. First, the need to be cognizant of the increasing connectedness of children's worlds. And second, the belief that the future requires better sharing of responsibilities for all children. Our speaker is Sonia Livingston, Professor of Social Psychology at the London School of Economics. Sonia is a graduate of both University College London, where she received a BSc in Psychology, and this university where she uh, uh, took her PhD in Psychology. She has worked at the LSE since 1990, and she has been a professor there since 1999. She has held a wide number of visiting professorships, including Stockholm, Bergen, uh, Copenhagen, uh, Illinois, Milan, and Paris, and is on the editorial board of several leading journals. Sonia is the author or editor of 17 books at the last count and many academic articles and chapters. Taking a comparative, critical, and contextualized approach, her work examines the opportunities and risks associated with digital and online technologies, including uh, children and young people's experience of digital media at home and at school. Um, she also studies the relationships between developments in media and digital literacies and the implications of changing media environment uh, of the changing media environment for audiences, publics, and the public sphere. Currently, she directs a 33-country network, EU Kids Online, which is funded by the European Union. And she also directs The Class, which is part of the MacArthur Foundation-funded uh, Connected Learning Research Network. 
She has at various times served on the Department of Education's Ministerial Task Force for Home Access to Technology for Children and also the boards of Voice of the Listener and Viewer and the Internet Watch Foundation. She has also advised a wide range of public bodies and for this and other work she was awarded an OBE in 2014 for services to children and child internet safety. So I'd like to introduce Sonia. Mary, thank you very much for uh, that kind introduction and for uh, inviting me to speak to you today. Well, um, in the past year or so, my work took a turn I didn't quite anticipate. I've spent about 15 years researching the meanings, practices and consequences of children's engagement with a constantly changing array of new media. Focusing on Europe, the part of the world I know best, I've hung out in kids' bedrooms, chatted with families in the living room, observed what goes on with technology in classrooms, kept up with the latest social networking trends, surveyed children and parents cross-nationally. And when I began this work, public and policy interest in Europe far exceeded the available research, most of which had come from the United States. So here is um, the network that I've been uh, working with uh, over the past 10 years, um, which is a European network trying to build capacity, develop methods and measures, generate new findings, and find ways to advise policymakers on the subject of European children online. So the turn I didn't quite anticipate was when, a couple of years ago, I was invited by UNICEF to help them respond to requests arriving from their country offices all over the world as children far beyond Europe were going online and sometimes finding themselves in trouble. In thinking about what research might be needed globally, I found myself translating the social science agenda concerned with children's online risks and opportunities into the language of children's rights, since UNICEF is a guardian of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. So I gave a presentation on children's rights and the internet to the Subcommittee on Human Rights of the European Parliament, and I addressed the day of general discussion held by the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, their first ever event on digital media. I spoke at the Council of Europe as they too planned their new strategy on children's rights in the digital environment. And I was invited onto the advisory board of Baroness Kidron's iRights Initiative, which advocates for children's right to be informed, safe and literate online, to know who has their data and to be able to remove it under certain conditions. All this thinking about children's rights made me notice how, in parallel, a new internet-related Bill of Rights for the general population was regularly being announced by one country or another. There are many Bills of Rights. And many of them didn't mention children at all or only as victims of illegal child abuse. And I began to see that including children in internet governance frameworks was highly controversial. Then I found a little time to stop and think about this flurry of activity. After all, I was trained as a social psychologist, as Mary said, in the intellectual space that bridges self and society. And after 20 years working in media and communications, which is a highly uh, multidisciplinary field, I've broadened my competence a bit. But I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not a technologist, and I very, know rather little about the global south. And I'm saying this because I think that such research challenges are now widely shared. Social science problems are increasingly multidisciplinary. 
Social science is engaging ever more with policy and other forms of impact. Knowledge is increasingly globalised and what we know from one country is quickly put into contention with what we know of other places. And an increasingly digitally mediated world challenges us all to figure out what's really changing and whether it's possible and desirable to intervene. So for the next half hour or so, I'll say something about children's online risks and opportunities. And my question here is, what makes this the digital age, to use a rather inadequate shorthand? And then I'll say something about the merits or otherwise of a rights framework to understand children's position and possibilities within this. And I'll consider how questions of children's rights in the digital age might be incorporated into international internet governance regimes. First, the short note on definitions. I'll follow the UN definition of a child as a person under 18 years old, not to patronise the many under 18-year-olds who already earn money or have caring or civic responsibilities or who might even be parents themselves, but to draw on the moral conviction of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which I'm going to talk about more, that under 18-year-olds have a particular claim to provision, protection and participation, the so-called three Ps, that applies over and above that of adults, bearing in mind that the Convention is also perfectly cognizant of what it calls the evolving capacities of the child and the need to address, address their rights accordingly. Then I'm going to talk um, using the terminology of the Global North and the Global South, which is often adopted to replace the much-criticised language of development, or before that, first, second and third worlds, but it's still problematic. These terms are too binary, they imply a singular vision of development goals, they tend to blind us to inequalities within countries and to commonalities across continents. So I use these terms with caution, uh, again needing a shorthand to refer to at least an approximate mapping of socio-economic inequalities and cultural difference onto geography. And as for information and communication technologies, or the internet, or the digital age, there's another terminological minefield. And as long as the technologies keep changing, our terms will remain unsettled. What's important is that at no point do I mean to imply a technologically determinist position, according to which the internet, in and of itself, is seen to create new benefits or harms in children's lives. And nor do I suggest a radical break with previous times. Children's lives are in many ways continuous with those of previous generations. And insofar as they're changing, there are many causes for this beyond changes in technology. In the past decade or so, the volume of research on ICTs in children's lives has grown exponentially, paralleling the rapid development and spread of the Internet itself. The research agenda, I suggest, has concentrated on four key questions. How are children gaining access to and using ICTs in their daily lives? Does it enable them to have greater access to information, education, participation and other valued resources and opportunities? Does it compound existing vulnerabilities or introduce new risks of harm to children's well-being? And which initiatives, policies and practices are effective in maximising the benefits and minimising the harm for children in relation to technology use? So let me first summarise a lot of research in just five bullet points. First, um, there's a ladder of opportunities, as you may see illustrated here. So this is European data. I'm sorry if the numbers at the back are a little bit small, but the point, I think, is captured more by the ladder than the numbers. 
The more children use the internet and the more digital skills they gain, the higher they climb the ladder of opportunities to gain the benefits. But not all internet use results in benefits, so the chance of a child gaining the benefits depends on a whole host of factors, including their age, gender and socioeconomic status, and rising up the ladder is um, heavily stratified. It also depends on how their parents support them and the particular opportunities available to them. Children's use, skills and opportunities are also linked to online risks. Here's some things children have said about the risks that they experience online. The more skills children gain and the more online opportunities they enjoy, the more the risk of harm that they face. So as internet use increases, ever greater efforts are needed to manage those risks, ideally without restricting their opportunities. Still, levels of risk are generally shown by reliable surveys to be lower than feared by some, but they remain a concern, um, as you can see from some of the things that children have to say about the internet. But again, not all risk results in harm. The chance of a child being upset or harmed by online experiences depends on a host of factors, again, including their age, gender, socioeconomic status, their resilience, and the resources to cope with adversity. And also important is the role played by parents, school, peers, community, and national provision for regulation, content, and education. That was my five bullet points. It may have sounded like more. Some but not all of these and related insights have informed the wider public and policy realms. But more often, we've heard the hyperbolic discourses of the pioneering and entrepreneurial digital native on the one hand and of the vulnerable innocents robbed of their childhood on the other. In consequence, and often guided more by enthusiasm than evidence, a host of initiatives have pushed technology into schools, libraries, youth centres and homes although teacher training, curriculum development and parental support have been slower to follow and only sporadically supported. And another host of initiatives are sought to profit from the child market or to promote filters and other safety products, much of this more restrictive than empowering and often catering to parental anxiety more than encouraging good sense. Not all of it's been problematic, of course. There are many wonderful initiatives, though these aren't always scalable. And there are plenty of sensible practices and some regulations that balance risks and opportunities in a proportionate manner. And there's a lot of everyday pleasure and benefit being gained from internet access by children and their families. But the effects of change have been scattered, with as many opportunities being missed as taken up. So far, so straightforward. The researchers are busy, the policymakers and practitioners are busy, the kids are absorbed in their screens, and the whole value chain of the industry is expanding as fast as it can. But there's a growing set of problems specific to children that haven't yet found a solution. So if you will forgive me an old joke, which is an old joke, these problems arise partly from the serious matter that online I don't really care who's a dog, but it's very hard to tell who is a child. So saying glibly, as I hear all around me from policymakers, that what applies offline also applies online, norms, laws, provision of resources, community oversight, etc., isn't really working if you can't tell who's an adult and who's a child. Offline, it's obvious who is a child after all. So some of the problems we see online 
It's children using services not targeted towards them, but rather targeted to adults, or sites, or, or using sites and service, services where the providers are unaware of or indeed negligent of their status. Children may lack the digital and other literacies to navigate and evaluate the demands and norms of an online environment where caveat emptor generally holds sway. Children are legal minors and so cannot technically enter into contracts as often tacitly occurs on the internet, and nor are they able to seek redress or have redress sought against them. They have particular educational, cultural and information needs that could be provided online, but are not generally met through provision for the general public. And a particular problem, they're below the age of sexual consent and particularly vulnerable to sexual exploitation and abuse online as offline. So ignorance about the specific users of services and therefore designing into the internet the working assumption that users are legal adults is one of several problematic affordances of the internet and other technologies that's complicating children's lives as much as it's enhancing them. I'd suggest that these are some of the other affordances that are also both complicating and enhancing children's lives in interesting ways. So the fact that the technologies are networked means each digital device and each user is interconnected dynamically, generating networked effects we're just beginning to work out the consequences of. Everyone is somehow included. Everything is shareable, scalable, rapidly spread. There are new relations of what's central and what's marginal. Everything can be traced. Interactivity. The content is never stable. It emerges through human and technological engagement and creativity or exploitability. It can be synchronous or asynchronous, replicated, and easily altered. Persistence. All the content and interaction is retained in one form or of another, being available, visible, and searchable by users who can further share, edit, um, and spread it at any scale from the individual to the global. And ubiquitous is to emphasize that all society, and I mean all, is affected by the existence and operation of digital networks, whether or not the individuals have personal access to digital devices. So these kinds of, through these kinds of affordances, use of the internet on a mass scale is reconfiguring the pathways by and through which children engage with their world. The internet increasingly mediates any and all human experience, and the risks and opportunities associated with internet use are altering who encounters which harms and which benefits. So my terminology here is designed to clarify the mediating role of technologies in reconfiguring the opportunity structures and risk factors that shape outcomes, whether beneficial or harmful for children, remembering that those outcomes occur to children who are still embodied, materially and physically located. I'm not talking about what's virtual. Over and again, that indeterminacy between risk and harm, opportunity and benefit, has tripped up the policymakers. So they get anxious about the many children who see pornography, which is surely a risk, but may not have lasting or may not cause lasting damage. They get very excited about the many children who are given a laptop in their classroom, surely an opportunity, but again, not necessarily with any obvious benefit. Does the nature of the pathway to harm or benefit really matter? Arguably, the pain of a harmed child is not worse if it arises online or offline, though the conditions that cause such harm are different. 
Indeed, some argue that the internet can hardly be making things worse, since there's little evidence of increased harms in children's lives over the decades in which internet access has become widespread. The incidence of child abduction or abuse, violence against children or child suicide are all down, though the jury is out on mental health. The same may be said of the fun of hanging out with friends, online or offline. What matters, surely, is that the child is having fun with friends, even though today that can be achieved in different ways. Or is this view of change too simple? As online and offline become increasingly interdependent, it might be argued that the pathways are reshaping the nature of the harms and benefits more fundamentally. For example, the affordances I just mentioned appear to ease the anonymous circulation of extreme pornography to a degree that's unprecedented, altering children's experience and knowledge of what is possible. Then it's widely thought that the severity of bullying is worse now that it extends online as well as offline, following children home from school, even into the privacy of their bedrooms. And some harms may even be new. Consider the use of webcams to perpetrate child sex abuse remotely. Benefits may be changing too. For example, the skills children need to navigate an information-based rather than a manufacture-based economy are genuinely different. And so the internet can be said to have reconfigured not only the route to learning, but also what knowledge counts. And then the possible solutions to reducing harm and to supporting benefits are altered by the extraordinary visibility that the internet has accorded to children's conversations, their intimacies, their naughtiness, their aggression, their curiosity, all of which were previously under the radar for better or for worse. So the point is that, I, that information and communication technologies are mediating children's lives in distinctive ways that are far from neutral or simple. While there's much more to be researched and understood, strategies are needed now, since existing frameworks for child-rearing and child-well-being are struggling. And I think this is why some are embracing focus on rights and why I found myself getting caught up in this question of rights. So I'll focus on the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, which is uh, the most widely endorsed, though not necessarily the most effective instrument, that establishes basic standards that apply without discrimination to all children worldwide. Um, though it was produced in the days before the internet, here is at least one um, uh, significant UNICEF player saying what we now need is a Convention on the Rights of the Child for the Digital Age. What would that look like? Already, the Convention specifies the minimum entitlements that governments are expected to implement, um, as I already said, um, in organising these in terms of the three Ps, of the rights to provision, uh, which are the resources necessary for children's survival and their development to their full potential, the rights to protection uh, against the wide array of threats to children's dignity, survival and development, and the rights to participation to allow children to engage with processes that affect their development and enable them to play an active part in society. So a rights framework draws research and policy on very diverse topics into a coherent framework. We might rewrite the research agenda on children and technologies in terms of these three Ps. In other words, the researcher's task would become that of investigating first children's needs, what do they need provided for them for their development, Second, research on children, on the harms that might uh, befall children, so as to understand and underpin efforts to protect them. And third, research on the nature of children's agency, so as to design better the opportunities for children to participate in matters that affect them. 
So although it was formulated before mass internet use was seriously imagined as an everyday reality for ordinary children, interestingly, around half of the convention's 41 substantive articles, when you reread them uh, with a... a, a with the benefit of hindsight, you see how they have immediate and obvious relevance to the digital age. So these are the ones that I would pick out. I won't read them out, and I hope that they are sufficiently familiar, but it gives you a sense, at least, of the kinds of uh, matters covered by the Convention. So in in 2009, uh, the Oslo Challenge issued... um, by um, uh, UNICEF already examined how the media and communication environment is becoming increasingly integral to children's rights. The present task, I think, is to go a step further and ask how does this convention apply to the digital convergent networked environment that I've been trying to say something about. And it's not hard to organise the many topics being discussed in relation to children and the internet according to the articles of the convention. You already saw this bit, so don't get worried. So I'm just translating it into, as it were, what would the research agenda look like? What are the things that we should be concerned about uh, in terms of children's risks and opportunities online, given the um, concerns of the convention? And I can think of research on um, each of these points, though you'll be glad I'm not going to detail it all here. But a few reflections It's important to note that the evidence when research is generated is always context-specific, and necessarily so. So there's always an inevitable tension between the universal language of the convention, um, which which is important because it calls forth such um, uh, international support as a kind of inspiring and ambitious vision to improve children's well-being. That's on the one side. On the other side, there's what we know of the complex individual and contextual factors that shape actual technology uses, meanings, and consequences. So a rights-based approach, though it offers this kind of integrating uh, and perhaps inspiring agenda, is not going to help us escape the public argumentation surrounding children's internet use. It just, as it were, shifts the debates into new questions like, what does it mean for children to have the right to develop their full potential in relation to information and communication technologies? Um, and can we, can we frame that in universal terms uh, without reference to the context in which they live? On the other hand, if we say a universalist approach is too hard, from what standpoint can we criticise the widespread view in many parts of the world that girls don't need technology access because their potential is less than that of boys? I think argumentation of this kind is only set to increase because most of what I've said so far is grounded in research and policy in the global north. And now events are overtaking us and we need to consider also the global south. So as this graph shows, internet access in the global north, the top orange line, is now reaching saturation. It's already at 78% last year. Well, that in what the... um, Uh, the ITU, the International Telecommunication Union, calls developing countries, is steadily growing, the green line. But percentages can be misleading, and if instead we consider the absolute number of those going online across the world, we get a different story. So now it's the developing countries, in terms of absolute numbers, that are, as it were, ahead, the green bar. 
And crucially, the tipping point has already been passed. Two-thirds of the world's nearly three billion internet users live in the global south, and the scope for further expansion lies there too. So the developing countries, the green um, in the graph, represent a population of nearly six billion people compared to just one and a quarter billion in developed countries. What's even more important and interesting for our present purposes is that in the developing countries, children comprise between one-third and one-half of the population, depending on the country, compared with around one-fifth in developed countries. In other words, my point is there are almost ten times as many children living in developing than developed countries, and for a growing proportion of them, internet or mobile access is becoming a reality. So children on the internet is hardly a marginal or exceptional concern. I direct that comment to those developing internet bills of rights that forget children. So what do we know of developments in the global south? This is where my European focus becomes something of a hindrance. Certainly we cannot simply extrapolate existing knowledge from the north to the south. It would be unfortunate also if we found ourselves repeating the mistakes of the global north among the populations now getting online in the global south. Mistakes I'm thinking of children who are either very worried about or ignored in their online activities, restrictive and or unsupportive schools, sometimes intrusive governments, and a vigorous market seeking to profit from all of these. Though I suspect that that is exactly what's happening in the global south. Significantly, I think the evidence is already suggesting that the step change in where children go online is not just a matter of geography. How children go online and the consequences of this is also changing. For instance, by contrast with two decades of experience in Europe and America, access in many developing countries is increasingly mobile first rather than desktop or workplace first. The personalisation that characterises device use in the global north also suggests a point of contrast. The GSMA's recent survey of children's mobile phone use, um, which shows widespread access to and use of apps and social networking services in Algeria, Egypt, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, also reveals that it's common to share mobile phones to meet individual or shared needs. Further, access is often community-based via cyber cafes or various public workarounds rather than based at home or school, which are the two main locations that we've studied in the Global North and the two areas where we've put in most of our policy effort. UNICEF's study in Kenya pinpoints the opportunities and risks of young people using the internet in little supervised cyber cafes. Kenyan children said that since their parents don't understand the digital world and they've become extremely fearful of the negative impacts and try to restrict their children's usage. So the children seek private and uninterrupted access in cyber cafes. They use fake names for their profiles. They bury their content in various folders or they use their mobile phones at home um, when everyone's gone to sleep to avoid parental oversight and sometimes very punitive parental reactions. In Brazil, a study based on the EU Kids Online model, extended there, found that over half the children um, live in homes where no adult uses the internet, and therefore, of course, most believe themselves much more capable than their parents, and many, again, as in Kenya, visit cyber cafes. Indicates some of the reports that I'm referring to. 
So given low levels of regulation, safety guidance and parental mediation, it's not surprising that there is growing evidence of risk of harm faced by children in the Global South. Children's experiences in the Global South, offline and therefore likely to be amplified online, are also sharply stratified by socioeconomic, ethnic, regional and gender inequalities, and too often marked by forms of sexual and aggressive exploitation. Plan International produced one of many studies reporting large gender inequalities in provision and in risk. In China, their survey found that four in five girls do not feel safe online. On the other hand, Connected.com's research in South Africa, where the rates of criminal and gender-based violence are high, found that girls are often precisely for this reason very aware of the risks of taking or sending revealing images of themselves, which I'd contrast with the situation in the global north where it's taken rather a lot of um, awareness-raising efforts to get people to recognise and address the hazards of sexting. Also complicating matters, in many countries where family and state regulation is highly restrictive, the result is a clash of rights. Restrictions may protect children, but they also undermine their opportunities for privacy, participation, information about identity, sexuality um, and health. More positively, there are plenty of reports from educators and NGOs working in specific locales about how children are finding workarounds or creatively reappropriating available resources to connect with others, even when faced by limitations of hardware or connectivity or even electricity. And there are burgeoning initiatives to support local networks of young entrepreneurs and innovators, NGOs and youth groups to bring technologically mediated learning into communities and neighbourhoods. For instance, in Iraq, one project linked adolescent girls into peer-to-peer support networks where they could discuss issues normally considered private or taboo in their society. In Europe, we've come to expect substantial public investment in internet access and online content. In countries where this is lacking, both access and use are likely to be much more commercial, with more advertising, more end-user costs, and less local, independent or own language provision, especially of the kind that will stretch children's learning or stimulate their imagination. So as I noted from our European research on the ladder of opportunities, even in privileged countries, relatively few children climb the ladder to take the more creative, interactive and participatory activities, and those who do tend to be the relatively well-off. What we haven't yet researched is how this works in the global south, whether the ladder takes a different form in different cultural contexts, whose goals define what go at the top of the ladder, whose voices should count in deciding on that. It seems to me again that it's precisely where the infrastructures to empower children are insufficient that a rights framework has the most to offer. Though, as I shall suggest in a minute, this is also where it can become the most problematic, making that translation from risks and opportunities into rights a hazardous enterprise. Yet it's only recently that children's rights in the digital age has begun to be taken seriously. Even in the global north, such interest has been slow to come, perhaps because children are only one in five of the population, their claims seem marginal, perhaps because they generally have parents and schools to care for them, policymakers have found it easy to leave matters to parents and schools or to the market. Perhaps dubbing children digital natives has served to pass responsibility onto the children themselves. Whatever the reason, things are now changing a little. And I see the shift coming in two different directions, now converging, just possibly 
because both the World Wide Web and the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child had their anniversary in the same year. More likely because people are genuinely beginning to recognise the numbers um, and concerns of children going online around the world, especially in the global south. So on the one hand, child welfare and rights organisations are extending their scope to embrace the internet. And on the other hand, advocates of freedom of expression and experts in internet governance are noticing that many children are online. So as their mutual conversation unfolds, we're witnessing, as I already showed you, a multiplying array of charters and manifestos regarding children's rights. And um, to give one example that I find quite interesting, the Internet Rights and Principles Coalition speaks with some authority. Um, so bear with me on this slide. You've seen this bit. You've seen this bit. This is the new bit. <laughs> I'm just trying to keep my mapping going with the limitations of font. Um, so from the convention, through the evidence and the concerns, to what it is that we might want to call for if we were going to write some of those concerns into a Bill of Rights. And I've picked this one um, partly because it was developed under the auspices of the Global Internet Governance Forum, the United Nations and UNESCO. Um, and partly because it makes specific reference to children and recognises their needs and concerns as well as those of adults. And it has the merit of talking about children's positive as well as their negative rights, and it was developed via an extended, accountable, multi-stakeholder process. So we might say, great, this is a comprehensive vision, we could all sign up to it and indeed hope it happens. But... We're scholars and researchers and critics, and um, we have to recognise some of the concerns and problems that might arise before we simply say, yes, bring on the Internet Rights and Principles Coalition, and all will be well. So, uh, since I'm in Oxford, I'll quote Isaiah Berlin uh, and his classic distinction between positive and negative freedoms, which is helpful uh, in this context in distinguishing two particular problems. First, we can see children's rights, children's protection rights as a case of negative freedom. For example, that children should be free from sexual or violent abuse and that today such protection is required online as well as offline. Commonly, negative freedoms are the less controversial, seeking to remove harms according to a minimalist approach to rights. But in practice, protecting children online has been highly controversial since, as I've already noted, there is no good way of knowing who is an adult or who is a child on the internet. And therefore, child protection online has risked restricting adults to generating a lot of resistance given concerns about censorship. Not to mention that the various policies and strategies um, on offer are generally inefficient, ineffective, and often open to further abuses of children's and adults' rights. Meanwhile, children's provision and participation rights represent claims for positive freedoms, and these commonly prove controversial since they assert a maximalist vision, inevitably normative, often Western and capitalist, of what the good life could be, of how the world should be. And indeed, although providing for children's online access has gained governments a lot of popularity, and although few would speak out against children's online participation... It seems to me that very few policymakers, parents or practitioners are able convincingly to elaborate with any specificity what would constitute greater provision for children or great opportunities for them to participate online. 
And that's because I think precisely that hazard of trying to specify in concrete terms what the world should be, what it is that children should have on a global scale. But when those with children's best interests at heart don't know what they want, the market, of course, is happy to fill in the gaps in our imagination. Then, as critics of rights frameworks have often observed, the politics of human rights are fraught. So I could quote Samuel Moyne, worrying about the shift from announcing formal entitlements, um, which is easy to do, in a sense, to acknowledging the controversial political choices that delivering those would uh, generate. I could quote um, Carl Hansen uh, in calling for international children's rights studies um, to ensure that we also examine the consequences of claims for children's rights, as it were, claimed in the name of children's rights, even though the consequences might be quite pernicious. I could quote the, special, um, the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, uh, concerned that child protection arguments are becoming part of a way of justifying <coughs> restrictions online for not only for children but also for adults. And I could quote UNICEF itself in its review of 25 years of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child that says even though the convention requires states to provide for children as a legal obligation, nonetheless, governments around the world continue to violate children's rights on a systematic basis. <coughs> so clearly one can only pursue a rights approach if one is thoroughly reflexive and critically engaged with the ways in which children's rights are produced and applied. Last, just a quick comment on who is going to deliver these rights. The claim of children's rights Indeed, human rights is traditionally directed to states. But one of the extraordinary features of the digital age is the extent to which states have devolved their power upward to international bodies, downward to local institutions, and most particularly outward to private sector organisations such as those that own the digital sites, services and infrastructures. For states, existing legislation is widely held to apply equally to the online domain, but in practice this is very difficult to implement. The fast-changing, highly complex, transnational nature of socio-technological infrastructures challenges national policymakers, and many prefer to put pressure on the industry to take responsibility, even to act in loco parentis. So here is yet more fraught territory. Give you one more joke. (laughs) Things have changed a little bit, and now probably... The industry does know who is a child online. They know everything else about us, right? But it doesn't admit to knowing this, and nor does it want to know because children are not their target market, they don't pay the bills, and if industry knew how old its users were, it would have to treat them according to their evolving capacities as specified in the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So some in the industry are stepping up to these responsibilities anyway, others are not, and even some of those that we know as playing by the rules in a conscientious way in the global north might be acting very differently in the lucrative and largely unregulated markets of the south. So, to conclude. (coughs) I've observed that researchers, children's organisations, industry and government are identifying a rising tide of new concerns and promised solutions from around the world. Um, I would argue that addressing these challenges is going to require a truly global process of dialogue and deliberation. 
fantastically difficult to do, and that this dialogue must include children's voices and experiences too, which doesn't mean blaming children when risks are encountered or overly celebrating their media-savvy skills, as this tends to legitimate a laissez-faire approach, but rather to recognise that children increasingly act within and through digital media and thus have the right to contribute to its norms and governance. So a recent multinational consultation on children's rights in the digital age revealed children's own conviction of the indelible and positive connection between rights and the internet. Sorry, that's probably too many words, but I just wanted to capture and I'll read out what it is that children, and these really were from all around the world, wanted to say when consulted themselves. They wanted to say, in their view, access to digital media is a fundamental right and that lack of access is often their biggest problem. They stress that their digital media uses are generally positive, despite considerable anxiety, and in fact they have a lot in common with each other, despite our concerns about difference. For them, they wanted to say the online-offline binary has been transcended by the diversity of communicative modes and settings that are becoming, for them, everyday life. They wanted to say that since digital media are the means through which children exercise rights to information, education and participation, they have become a key route to their well-being. And that, relatedly, literacies, digital media and social, are fundamental to accessing and understanding and participating in digital media, and therefore literacy is fundamental to exercising rights in a digital age. They also wanted to say children, they understand that with rights come responsibilities, including being accountable for their own actions, and they want adults to support and trust them in using media widely. Actually, wanting adults to trust them is the thing that often comes across when you do discussions with children. And children wish to be involved in policy deliberations that affect them so that they can offer their expertise and engage with processes that affect their rights. So I find much to respect in these messages, and some will find this, as it were, a stimulus to do the research that does respect children as independent rights holders in the digital age. Some will take the further step to advocacy, though this remains controversial given interventions are effortful, ineffective sometimes, and politically messy. And some will adopt a critical standpoint, evaluating policy and research and practice of all kinds. And all of these approaches are legitimate. What matters most is that each of us remains alert to the complexities and challenges posed by the others. So it's with considerable caution that I've argued for children's, a children's rights framework in the digital age. For researchers, I see the challenge is one of squaring the universal framing of children's rights, which is important because that's the power and inspiration, with the diverse contexts that account for what children need, what harms them, and how they can express their agency. For policymakers and practitioners, this diversity of contexts complicates the possible solutions that could enhance children's protection, provision, and participation. So ideally, policymakers would now work to find ways to embed the importance of the digital into their everyday policies and practices uh, related to children's well-being. And conversely, they would find ways to embed the importance of children's rights into the policies and practices of the many organisations concerned with the digital. Will it happen? Your guess is as good as mine. Thank you. Thank you.